So I saw an Instagram post last week that has got my juices flowing a little bit. It said all artists are activists. Mm-hmm. I know we talk a lot about how some artists, especially black folks, feel like they want to come into the space without having to play that activist card all the time. But mm-hmm. for, for all of the people we talk about from Nina Simone, all sorts of folks, it seems that is the case to be an artist. Certainly these days, there has to be some sort of activist slant. What do you think about that? Well, it's all about choices that an artist makes, right? So a choice invariably at some point is going to turn political or social justice oriented something. Right. It's going to show your 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 stance. Well, whether people consider themselves activists or not through their art, there are all sorts of organizations that Support artists, activists, name or, one. or not. Well, I'll name two for you. As a matter <laughs> of fact, since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. Huge thanks for their support and more on their upcoming program in a bit. Programming in a bit. Also, shout out to Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. I'll speak more about some of their upcoming program here programming here in a bit as well. But as we close out our celebration of Women's History Month, I've been thinking about that Instagram post I saw and activists who are artists and women of note. There are so many that we talk about year round, you know, Mm -hmm. week, week after week. But I feel like every now and again, there are folks out there whose names we know and whose work is familiar, but we don't say their names every day Mm -hmm. or, or talk about their work all the time. Uh, are there any women activists, musicians that you would put into that category? We don't say their names every day. Maybe we know their names, but we need to make sure that we continue to tip their hats to them every time we have an opportunity. The first one that leaps to mind is Joan Baez. Hmm. She lived it, slept it, ate it. Activism was, uh, peaceful activism was her bag. Hmm. And the fact that she did it with such a songbird voice and playing guitar, she didn't write much of her own music. She was mainly covering other people's music. But, yeah. And plus, there's a there's like a 23-minute recording of her uh, in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. She was over there with some, um, with some uh, human rights lawyers and politicians, I suspect, that were, uh, they got caught in this epic Christmas Day bombing raid. You know, oh, wow. she, So she was recording and you could hear this in the background. So it wasn't that she was even protesting from the safety of this shore. You know, it's a lot of respect for Joan Baez and such a beautiful voice as well. Yeah, I was looking here and I saw that there's a, uh, a few years ago, a PBS documentary came out about her where she's talking about some of her experiences. And it looks like here she's Spent some time in jail and spent some time in jail with her family. Mm. Here's her uh, talking about it a little bit. I remember when I was being arrested for, well, sympathizing with the anti-draft movement. My sister and my mom got arrested along with me. Mother had a marvelous time in jail. The black inmates, they just adored her. They called her mama. We got called into the lieutenant's office and the lieutenant wanted to know from mom if she'd, had, if she'd been rehabilitated in any way. And mother said, oh, yeah, I said, I, I never knew how to lie before. I've really learned how to lie. I couldn't steal a thing. Now I'd steal anything to get it to somebody who's in lockup. And she, <laughs> and she left the jail with an apron, which I still have, stuffed full of contraband letters from the regular inmates. Yeah. 
<laughs> she said her mom had a fabulous time in jail. <laughs> she did all right. <laughs> One of the points I think she's making there that I want to outline is the fact that Joan Baez says this new generation, this younger generation, we aren't willing to really put it on the line. Take the risk. And, and, and risk something. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I've made a certain number of risks. We both lived here in these Twin Cities in mm-hmm. May of 2020. A lot of people went to jail. A lot of people were really willing to put it down for the cause that they saw. Mm. I understand and hear her perspective, but from my perspective, I'd say, you know, me as a millennial and certainly Gen Zers are willing to put it all on the table, depending on what the circumstance is. And I think that she inspired a lot of people through her music to get the courage to do that. Mm. If you want to talk about rallying, you know, a movement, um, During the Vietnam War, with all these protests going on, uh, President Nixon at the time was looking for any way that he could quell it and make it legal. Mm. So that's when they went after pot. Mm. So they make they they make cannabis an issue, and then they can you know it doesn't matter that you have a permit to protest or you have free speech or whatever. You're smoking weed, you're going to jail, and then that has then that has fed a stigma. (laughs) <laughs> that exists to this day. Sure. To this day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, of course, here on at least the host of the Triloquy podcast, you know, that don't apply to me. That that's that stigma has no impact. You heard. <laughs> What's an example of Joan Baez's music that you think folks need to know if if they have never heard of Joan Baez? Very serendipitous that this Pete Seeger track came to mind. Pete Seeger wrote it um based on a uh, Russian-Ukrainian lullaby from hundreds of years ago from a region right along the Russian-Ukrainian border. And it's all about, uh, it asks the question, where have the flowers gone? Well, the, the girls picked them. Well, where are the girls? Well, they grew up and they took husbands. Well, where are the husbands? They're in uniform in the war. And it's this cyclical thing of, you know, the, it shows the futility of, of war. Young girls pick them, everyone. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the young girls gone? Long time passing. And speaking of stigmas or sorts of status quo that have lasted over a generation to this day, I don't know that we actively have war and drafting and that whole conversation today as y'all did, as they did back during Mm -hmm. the Vietnam War. You know, I I don't think it's fair to compare those things. But I think this love and reverence of the idea of a military has fed into a culture that results in unnecessary occupations of the United States and and certain parts of the world and this... uh, uh, a lack of valuing life, you know, really painting things with a broad bush, brush of mm-hmm. good guy, bad guy. I hope that we don't have to get back to the conversation of anti-war as the conversation existed, you know, as Joan Baez was speaking about it and, and singing about it. But maybe we'll get back there. I don't know. If not that, there's plenty more for us to stop killing each other over. I was really hoping that we had gotten to a point where war was a thing of the past and the yeah. desert storm shows up. 
And of course, that's my generation, you know, everybody's shitting themselves thinking, are we going to get called up? You know, the draft never happened, mm -hmm. but that raised the specter of it, yeah. which, which we had been living blissfully unaware yeah. of what could what, what could happen if a war broke out. Well, I'm 36 now, so doesn't that mean I'm uh, unqualified? You know, I can, I'm after oh, walking. Oh, no. They're going to find something for me to do. If it comes down to it, like in World War II, they took anybody, no matter how old or how Ooh, ugly. I, well, maybe I shouldn't joke, but yeah. 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 Shout out to If Joan it gets Baez. to it. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the music activists that I wanted to bring in, I feel like a lot of people know the name Sister Soldier, yes. but maybe aren't as familiar with some of the things that she actively said or actually said. You know, Sister Soldier, I would consider her sort of heyday as far as the raptivist or whatever. You know, early to mid 90s, I was a kid, I was around and I can remember, but it isn't as pronounced in my mind as it would be for some adults. Is Sister Soldier a name that you would say was more ubiquitous than not, you know, in those early to, to mid 90s? Would, would you have known who Sister Soldier was in 1993? The only reason that I knew her was through Public Enemy. Mm, uh, yeah. She did um, a, a track called Move. And also when there were skits in between tracks and things, she would oh, sure. voice things there. Sure. Um, but I was not aware of her activism and being a, a a white kid from the suburbs, it would it would be a suburbs of Nebraska. In that. the suburbs of Nebraska, yeah. it would be weird for me <laughs> to not have access to that. Well, you know, talk shows made it to the suburbs of Nebraska. In many ways, those were like, like early what? podcasts. You know, like Sally Jesse and uh, Philip, Don uh, Philip, Phil Donahue. You oh know, yeah, I was. I didn't watch those. <laughs> Sorry, I get you. I get you, but I didn't well, watch. Well, you know, she. What was something that I often returned to was her appearance on a panel on Donahue, and she's she's really breaking down something really important here in this excerpt that I wanted to uh, share. Let's take a listen here. I'm not saying we've built a lot of institutions sure. and those institutions have not been effective. The majority of millions of African youth in this country are dying mentally, dying spiritually, dying emotionally, dying academically. And you may have a program, Mr. Brown may have a program, but what we got to talk about is an American government that traps millions of African people who don't go to your program, don't go to Brown's program, millions of African people, not only here but all around the world and if we are not honest enough to say who are our friends who are our enemies to know what a friend is to know what an enemy is we will constantly be trying to get into people's parties to shake our butts with them to get them to like us and that's not the question the question is what can we build amongst ourselves to secure ourselves from our enemies so that we will be able to survive so really the 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 root of the thing that she's talking about there is integration into existing systems versus building mm -hmm. our own systems i will also note is from that same panel where Sister Soldier famously says, where are all of these good white people that mm -hmm. people keep mm -hmm. keep talking about? I, I want to meet them. You know, she she really goes off. So it's a it's a provocative thing. But I think when you carve away the emotion and the sort of visceral reaction to some of the things that she says, what she was preaching back then is still hard for a lot of people to grasp these days that mm -hmm. idea of integrating into existing systems versus building new tables to sit at 
how we can talk about all of these diversity initiatives and so-called outreach programs. But at the end of the day, at best, those programs will only benefit a small percentage of all of the mm -hmm. youth, especially that need to be engaged by it. She's she's one of she's one of my favorites. And I wish that we could say her name more often. Again, I think the name recognition is still there, but we don't actually think about her actual words and her actual work in the way that we were forced to, right. you know, back in the 90s. Let me try to illustrate it for you. How how do you, if she gave that interview today, how do you think it would be received? I think it would be received in a very similar way as it was received back in those days. Well, that was going to say, I was, you know, because yeah. even today she would be labeled as you're loud, you're, be, you're being, too, you're too in everybody's face, you're mm -hmm. too this, you're too that. Now put it in 1995. So, and in, in, on this day, in this moment, if I have to ask you about building new systems versus reforming existing systems. Where are you on that question? <laughs> I still think it's, it's, you have to understand that it's my perspective that I think that this, that the existing system can be rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I can only speak from my perspective and I understand you and I are at, at odds on that. I, I know that, you want to take it down to the studs and rebuild. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. There's still some things to save. But um, I'm going to be optimistic. And I'm going to say that I still think there are, there are good things about the ecosystem that can be saved. I hate when people answer questions like that with, well, we need both. You know, I kind of feel like oftentimes that's a, a cop out. But mm -hmm. really, at this point in my life, I really do see it that way. I think we do need to build new institutions and new platforms. But as I said on that panel a couple of weeks ago down in Texas with Rissy Palmer, them, I'm uncomfortable with the problem. Like, let, let's do the lunch table analogy. Okay. If it's a table in the lunchroom that is all white, all traditional. They they get a lot, of, if not most, of the funding. You know, mm -hmm. most most of the the chocolate milk goes <laughs> to to okay. their table. I'm supposed to sit there and say nothing about that, and that's where I am when it comes to these institutions. I really feel like <laughs> stuff needs to be shaken up from the inside as well as from the outside, because mm. I don't like the idea of status quo, anything just sitting comfortable, unchallenged, while everybody else has to fight over crumbs and, mm. and fight over the, the little bits to get us a little bit, you know, when, when there's so much more available. So what table are you at then? Well, I mean, I, I feel like I'm walking around the lunch. See, I'm I'm one of the the children that the uh, hall the lunch monitor is saying, Garrett, will you please have a seat? Will you sit down?" But I just can't <laughs> because I need to see what they're doing over here. Uh, you know, devising plans and building new tables. But I'm going to make the people over at that other table with all the chocolate milk uncomfortable mm. because that's just not going to fly with me. Mm. And I feel like on this podcast, that's what we're here to do. We're here to have dialogue that can inspire new thought, can inspire building of, of new things, new institutions, but also, you know, makes people who have been sitting comfortable, sitting pretty, feel a little bit of the pressure, a little bit of the sweat. You know, it's no shade. It's it's no violence. It's all about making us all better. You know, so as, as, the, as we say in Buddhism, a great sword is forged in fire, you know, so that heat has to be applied for something to be better, for something to be its best thing. So we're just applying a little bit of heat. That's all. Well, actually, I would look at it as the duel being, you know, you to keep a blade sharp, you have to use it. There you go. There you go. So both of those things. We're at, we're applying heat, we're using blades, mm. and uh, doing it all for the sake 
of decolonizing this thing called classical music. And the chocolate milk is oat. <laughs> Amen. Yes, yes. Let's go more plant-based as well. Let's save the planet <laughs> as well as classical music. All right, here we go. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. I was so deep into my emotions talking about Sister Soulja, I forgot to play some of her music. I'll put it in the description <laughs> anyway. Y'all go check out My God is a Powerful God in the description. Really dope track there and really dope to have each and every one of you here. To returning listeners, thank you so much for continuing to support this show and to help us keep this thing platformed as a vital part of the so-called classical music ecosystem. If this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes this idea of classical music. We expand it to include more music, more aesthetics, more genres, more dialogues, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses and to contribute, go over to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very vital support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club. Coming up, Later next month, if you're listening to this when this comes out at the end of March, coming up on April 13th, Schubert Club is featuring Speaking in Tongues, featuring Soa Mensa, Enrique Toussaint, Mark Anderson, and Gao Hong, hosted by all of these people. The series features accomplished musicians and composers from the Twin Cities, as well as occasional musical newcomers, bringing together different sounds, different aesthetics, all toward the unity of what music can create for all of us. So go check out more about that upcoming courtroom concert at schubert.org very excited to have that happening soon as things are melting here in minnesota the meltdown you know, is on where we're in slushy mode where you got to <laughs> wear your galoshes to the concert but if you're over in california you don't have to worry about that at all at least not the way we have to <laughs> worry about here uh Salestina has some incredible things coming up including their happy hour number 112 join them for a stunning and colorful preview of their collaboration with leela dance collective a hindustani classical dance troupe that's coming up on April 8th at 11 a.m. at the Popham Room at the Doheny Mansion. More information on that at salestina.org. Coming up in the third movement, I can't wait to share my conversation with Wu Man and Amjad Ali Khan. They're two musicians who come from very different traditions, one from China, one from India, but they've uh, come together to create an album called Songs for Hope, Music for Hope. So can't wait to uh, share that with y'all. We're going to talk about ticket prices of events in the <laughs> finale, more woman-led music in the second movement. But for now, we're going to go ahead and jump into movement one. So you uh, are bringing in something this week from the other side of the pond, mm -hmm. as you tend to. Go, go ahead and give, give it to us. Well, you know how many uh, BBC-oriented music organizations there are there, right? Uh, many, more, the, more than I know, The BBC probably. Scottish, the BBC Phil, the yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. So it came out a month, month and a half ago that there were going to be like hack and slash cuts. Uh, 25 and 30% to all of these organizations. Mm -hmm. And the BBC singers were to be just disbanded. 
and is and, 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 and I don't know if you know, but I wonder if this is because of a lack of engagement, funding goes down, interest has gone down. I wonder what these cuts are the result of. I, it's there's articles out there speculating all of the above, and but there's this, no there's no public uh, front or or how can I say just a. Uh, uh, principal idea that people have about why this is happening. There's just no. lots of speculation out there. They're kind of holding it close to the vest over and, there. I and guess. you know what happens whenever uh, a big organization starts to lose money, they cut the niceties. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, now, as you can imagine, there's a huge choral tradition in England and the blowback was swift and immediate there were educators, conductors, composers, soloists, and I think like a, a, a hundred and fifty thousand signatures from a signature campaign were collected. So swift blowback on on this decision. So we have centuries and centuries of all white programming that people just let go, whatever it is, what it is. But as soon as you take away the singing, people are out in the streets with the to torches. Sure. Anyway, what what accidental are you giving this? Um, I am uh, I'm going to give this a sharp okay. with um, from the guardian.com. The headline is Arts World Activism Save the BBC Singers. Let's take the same fight to the government cuts. So interesting. You know, we were in the introductory in, introduction talking about activism. Arts activism in a headline not too long ago always came with something negative mm -hmm. or, or something slipped diskish. But <laughs> but now we're seeing, you know, arts activism being conjoined to something positive, something that the BBC and uh, and, and other news uh, sources can cite as a positive. Right. The surge of support for Coral Group is proof that we have the power to take a stand against savage arts council cutbacks. It starts with, so it's over for now. After two weeks of unprecedented protests, the BBC has bowed to the inevitable and suspended immediate plans to disband the BBC singers. Sounds good, right? Okay. I have to yeah. tell you that I I was thrown by the article because it does not sound to me like the BBC went, oh, whoops, okay, all right, we'll find money for it somewhere else. Yeah. They said the caveat is the funding is offered by external organizations. Mm. So it doesn't sound to me like the BBC turned anything around. It was the people who turned it around ultimately. I mean, there, there's, there's some people it. who watched, uh, wrote checks and things. But, but yeah. they, did, they didn't get the BBC to do it, though. Mm. That's what I'm saying. So what's that's the, what it, it sounds so, like. So what's the significance of, of that for you? Well, the, because the BBC is still not giving them any money. Mm -hmm. They're saying, well, if y'all want it, go find it. You know? right. and, and I guess they found it. And they did. Uh, and it's also affecting... Uh, they said, since this is one of the options being actively explored, no done deals on this yet, though. Hmm. So it's not done. Arts activism hasn't completely saved it, has mm, it? Mm. I wonder what it would look like, because one, one of the things that I'm thinking about right now is how in the United States, we have always looked to Europe as the model for how arts should be funded. It's a government job. Right. It's something that right. governments actually value. What if so-called classical music here in the United States became a little bit more corporatized. Do we need Coca-Cola or Budweiser or Trojan condoms or something to start being the sponsors of orchestras to save them, to expand programming, to do whatever we need for them to do to survive here? So survival and expanded programs through more capitalism. 
I mean, that's that's mm. what we're looking at here with this BBC thing. So, right? are they going to be? Are they still the BBC singers if they're funded by an external source? Ah, I didn't think about that. That's a good point. That's so, a very good point. Does the Chicago Symphony Orchestra become uh, Am Soil Philharmonic? <laughs> I mean, I, I think the Walgreens. Sh- I think the, Symphony Chica- the Chicago Symphony may not be at risk in the way that the BBC singers were, but let's take you know the, what I'm saying. But though. let's take the Omaha Symphony or the Memphis Symphony. You know these sure. these great groups that don't have that historic funding in some of these larger mm-hmm. institutions. I don't know if if that's what it takes. If that's how uh, we keep these musicians employed, keep audiences with an option to hear symphonic music of some sort. I don't know if I'd be completely opposed. I know that sounds weird for me to say, not that I'm saying we need to get deeper into capitalism, but if the immediate answer is how do we save these institutions over in England, the answer was to get outside funding. Maybe that's the case here too. So the, the entity, the business that is giving this outside funding, are they going to allow the group to be autonomous and put together their own programs and chart their own course? Or are they going to engage in uh, payola and dictate what they play and what they do? I guess that depends on how generous that institution is feeling. I'm sure there are some of these big name, big money corporations that would allow autonomy. I'm sure there are some that would you know, really center how can we make sure that the audiences are always thinking about our brand and our product? How do we center them on giving us money? somehow through programming. I think you would you would see everything on either side and everything hmm. in between, probably. And so then you get used to all this money and this expanded program, and then all of a sudden Ford doesn't sell as many trucks, mm-hmm. and the Ford symphonic strings gets cut <laughs> right when you're right when you when you've just got your new uh your new Ford Mustang. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we saw it during we started doing uh, uh, COVID, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, how everyone sort of yeah. suffered. Anyway, I th- just just an interesting thing for me to think about what it would look like to further corporatize the arts, you know, as it saved the BBC singers over there. And, you know, uh, maybe with the expanded uh, opportunities that uh, a big sugar daddy corporation coming <laughs> in and giving you money would do. Yeah. <laughs> is that wrong? But no, what I'm saying is uh, we can move past the idea of this this legacy, the heritage that the BBC bring of the old England vocal tradition. Mm -hmm. Maybe this expansion will bring in more exciting things that would appeal to the uh, my age and lower. That's what's Younger. so messy again. That's what's so messy about this whole thing because the oh, road in, in into more uh, the road to more expanded programming and and X Y and Z has to come by the hand of something else that we need to get rid of. You know, something else we need to dismantle. This whole uh, idea that there are certain individuals, certain institutions that get to have enough money to come in to mm. save these organizations. Thank mm. goodness that these people are still in a job and these audiences still have this money, but. There's the other side of it. Now we have a, a corporation that just, as, as you're saying, has the power to say what they want to hear, what they want to do, what what because at the end of the day, they wrote the check to make it happen. Right. It wasn't a publicly funded thing or government funded thing. It's a private funded thing. But I think that that would have to be set up and understood at the beginning because as we know, large faceless corporations are, are very um, uh, benevolent. <laughs> mm-hmm. with the way they sp- distribute their money, aren't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. 
Does it say, while you know, we're talking a lot about these corporate institutions, does this article actually say who saved the BBC? It doesn't. Yeah, So, and, and that's a part of it as well. They don't want every other arts organization writing them a letter, writing them an email, trying to schedule a meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, they just want to, you know, do do that. Th- I don't know. It's it's easy to for me to be judgy about it and to think about, oh, you know, these rich people, da, da, da. you know, and, but on the other side, you know, they aren't branding themselves, at least at this point in the conversation as the saviors of the BBC right. singers. So I don't know. The other thing that this- If they are, remained anonymous, that would be cool. Yeah, sure, sure. But then at the same, I don't know. Again, even with that, I go both ways because when our local uh, arts institution, you know, our radio arts institution got an anonymous, what, 53 or whatever million dollar donation. Six. It was it was a lot of people, who 56 million. Yep. It was a lot of people wondering who that was, you know, and I think it's fair to uh, to ask the question, are they paying for change? Are they paying for a conservation of what's happening, you know, keep doing what you're doing, whatever white programming is happening over there, keep that up. You know, I I think knowing who the donor is helps see why the donor is, you know, why this money is. Anyway, we, we can talk about that all day. But the other thing I wanted to bring out of this article was this idea that at the end of the day, while the conversation is not over about saving this institution, the people's cry was heard. You know, all mm-hmm. of these school teachers and fans, audience members, students, you know, they really rallied together to save this thing. Is there something <laughs> that we over on this side of the pond would sure. actually rally behind to save? I mean, within the arts or not, it's hard for me to think of that one thing that everybody would just come to the streets to make sure that we saved. During the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, I think we saw more widespread protests than we had certainly in my lifetime, you know, and mm-hmm. many people's lifetime. But it's hard for me still to determine what is an institution or a thing that people would broadly go to the streets for, to write letters for, to save. I don't know what that thing is. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Not arts-oriented? Um, maybe athletics, if they tried to take baseball. football or baseball right off, off TV, basketball. Maybe people would be out in the streets then, but... For me, the answer is still maybe. I, I, I don't know if that's even a guarantee. I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know of many people who would pour out into the streets for theater or, <laughs> you know, sure. you're not sure. going to take away our show tunes. Mm. Well, what's your uh, takeaway from this article from The Guardian? What can we learn from what happened over there with the BBC singers? Well, first off, the whole story falls apart for me in the first paragraph because it's all up in the air. It's an external source. The BBC is is off the hook. It, it, they still cut it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what are we getting, what, what's to get excited about yet? Well, I guess hope. I mean, the, hope is something to get excited about. The activism, sure, but we don't know yet. So well, I guess stay tuned, true believers. Yeah, yeah. And just don't lose hope in what a collective cry, a collective roar a collective whatever can Mm. do even if the bbc singers doesn't end up being saved somebody tried and we're talking about the possibility of it being saved without the bbc's hand in it so we let let, let's not take for granted what we can do as a people as an arts lovers to 
fix something or at least try to save something. All right, well, we're going to transition out of this accidental with a performance featuring the BBC Singers. It's actually the BBC Singers along um, with the BBC Symphony Orchestra in a performance of a work by John Adams. It's called the Dr. Atomic Symphony. I used to play this a lot down at WUOT. You like this one? Ne- never made it across my my playlist set at NPR. You're definitely kidding. bombastic. Definitely something a little noisy and rattly, but a great uh, example of what the BBC Singers has done over the generations. So here's a little bit of this to get us to our next accidental. <laughs> Title Dr. Atomic Symphony has me thinking, even through world tragedy, I'm not sure if there is anything, and I, and I should be more hopeful, but based on the evidence that we have had so far, it doesn't seem like there's anything that would really pull people together, even if we're talking about broad tragedy. Before we cut on the mics, we were talking about how COVID could have been that thing to mm-hmm. bring us more together, but in some ways out of necessity, in some ways not, it really put us further apart. I remember taking, I used to take a lot of walks in those days, early in the morning. And if somebody was coming down the sidewalk, the right thing to do was to cross the street, you know, to right. to not have any physical proximity. We look at all of these zombie movies, you know, the, the Last of Us, uh, the first season of it just ended anyway. And we see throughout all of that stuff, how we're killing each other more than we're killing zombies as a as a company front, as a as a group mission. So I don't know. It's definitely going to invasion. It's alien invasion. We will find a reason to be killing each other. And no, I deserve to go on the alien ship. No, take me. No, take me. You know, it will turn into that. You have, of- <laughs> you have to explain to it. Once you leave here, you're the alien, dude. <laughs> anyway, my my point is based on the evidence that we have seen, it's hard again, in our American context to imagine rallying around something in the arts, you know, much less it seems crazy, something, it? something more important or, or, or more relevant to more people, but we can hope we can, we can have hope, right? At Damn. least that's uh, it's important to at least have that, you know, and not just completely give up at least in my opinion. Anyway. All right. I'm coming in with an accidental, uh, uh, article from New Music USA. I think I'm going to go ahead and give this one a sharp as well. The headline is Eyes Wide Shut, The Case Against Blind Auditions. We've talked about blind auditions a lot here mm-hmm. on Triloquy. You know, my general idea is that if orchestras want to hire diverse they can just do that. We don't have to even go through the process of auditions. You don't have any black people in your orchestra. Go ahead and find some black people and hire them. And if somebody is mad at you, if somebody has something to say, well, that means you need to stand in your values and create your track record for your commitment to equity and, and all of those things. So, you know, just just to get us started, for the record, that's how I really feel about the blind auditions, that the auditions need to go away if we're using that as a means to hire more diverse or anything. But the the writer of, uh, of this article makes the case that there's a thin line between representation and quotas when it comes to institutions 
hiring diverse with or without blind auditions with or without that audition curtain for you what do you what what do you think about when you think about determining whether or not representation is at the center of an initiative or if meeting quotas is at the center of an initiative how do you determine one from the other <laughs> um i'm i'm not sure i'm not sure how i would do it representation versus quota like really being so, concerned rather than just trying to check a box and say, oh, look, we're diverse. Do orchestras have quotas? I think the short answer is yes, but what really needs to be explored is why are those quotas in place in the first place? The only reason, I don't know, and I feel weird about saying this, but the only reason why many institutions, even outside of the arts, even entertain the conversation is because there's some sort of funding or there's some sort of street cred or there's something connected to having a more diverse staff optics you're talking a more optics. diverse board what whatever but that isn't to say that there aren't some organizations that really do care so I, you know again that question of drawing the line between representation and quotas is something that this writer explores um in in this article you know one of the big points that she makes is that job descriptions in the arts i would even say in radio are very much about what the job entails, but not so much about who the job entails. More and more lately, I've been seeing job descriptions say not requirements and then listing a number of things, but who you are, colon, and then, you know, uh, other bits of, of hmm. descriptions. Hmm. I wonder how important you think it is to find a so-called right personality type in addition to someone who can do the job. I know in orchestras, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of violinists who can play Don Juan or, or insert whatever uh, orchestral excerpt here. There are many people who can play the role of radio host and, and, and presenter and all of these things. But that other thing that how well you mesh with a staff, how how well you can connect with an audience, depending on what sort of audience you have. I think that is a part of what gets missing out of that blind audition right. sort of framework and what this author is sort of questioning. So basically, you're talking about the little section where the company says who we are. Mm -hmm. And this is where I wanted to, you know, talking about uh, adding a corporate factor to, you know, save an arts organization. Is what is what is is there a cor corporate esque culture in an orchestra? Well, you tell me. We have orchestral and opera institutions with millions, sometimes billions of dollars in endowments and all of these things. You have to have some sort of corporate culture to maintain that much money, right? So the interpersonal aspect of it is something that she goes into in depth and you're talking about how you fit in their corporate culture mm -hmm. and that all of a sudden becomes a code for what well it's it's interesting for you to approach it in that way because Why? i think what she's arguing is that when it comes to auditions we're censoring how a person sounds or how a person plays as opposed to including how well they meld with a section of an orchestra so right. there's not so much corporateness in that but i could certainly see that 
if you know we're trying to hire our next development director or okay, something like I, that. I guess I'm what I'm really just talking about is behavior mm. or attitudes or points of view or something like that. You know, you should you should be able to sign on with a group's mission. Mm-hmm. That that's what I mean. Yeah. So if an orchestra has the mission of you know, celebrating local communities through the power of the art. So I'm, I'm just, you know, spitballing here. Yep. Someone who takes an audition should be able to be a part of that mission, should be able to, in their own unique way, engage that mission as fourth chair, uh, fourth stand cello or or mm-hmm. whatever. And that is something that uh, I think she's speaking to what's what's being missed here. The other thing that I think about when it comes to that conversation of critiquing blind auditions, you know, because it's more than just your playing that's important, because of the narrow, narrow, narrow siphon through which auditions happen, we can talk about expanding the performance repertoire, but audition repertoire is still very much in a box. Mm. All of all of the musicians, not all of you musicians, certainly not, but if if 300 clarinet players show up to an audition for the New York Philharmonic, at the end of the day, 50 of them sound virtually the same. You know, they can all do the job. Maybe right. only 10 of them would be great at the job. But <clears throat> this idea of the playing alone, the qualifications alone being the thing that determines, she's arguing is outdated and sort of inappropriate to view because that is more. It's more than that mm-hmm. that takes a great musician, that makes a great musician or makes a, a a great orchestra. And then when you tie that again with this idea of the blind auditions being a way to increase diversity or inspire diversity, you know, it, it all just starts to sound really silly mm. because we've seen the lack of diversity, at least racial diversity, that the blind auditions have uh, have manifested over these past decades. Women, you know, have have really. Uh, made great strides in the orchestral field thanks to blind auditions. So it's important to a degree not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But the part of the discussion that we need to have is what are the barriers? And we, we've talked about this a lot. What are the barriers to that audition for peoples from, from right. certain communities? It's not just about being fair at the actual audition. It's about being equitable in the road toward preparing people for the audition and, and making them even want to be a part of it in the first place. And we're sort of entering into that area of, you know, you can't really say, I think it needs to be both. There is no hybrid mm-hmm. of this argument, is there? It doesn't hybrid seem solution. like there is. It doesn't seem like there is. One other thing that I wanted to point out from this article, I'm going to read here. She says, there's something sad and insufficient about postgraduate educational efforts to diversify orchestras. Well-meaning as such designated residencies are, they do too little too late. It's hard to imagine how a person of color truly improves his or her odds of winning a screened audition simply by having sat in a designated minority residency chair for a year or two. Mm. In 2016, the League of American Orchestras published a study showing that those residencies just don't work on the whole. I wanted to point that out because I went directly into one of those programs after graduate school. I won a a, a two-year fellowship with the Detroit Symphony, and it was a very rough time for me. There was a lot of colonization that was expected of me that I was not interested in. At the same time, having that regular uh, practice of preparing for concerts at a very high level, making sure that I'm keeping myself up. That was a huge part of my, you know, continued success in the field and winning the job that I did eventually win. Mm. At the end of the day, though, I think we need to critique 
what we're training people into, you know, what sort of system we're training people into, this idea that a position in an orchestra is earned or or unearned because like I was saying, 50 people out of 300 can do the job, 10 of the 300 would all be phenomenal mm-hmm. at the job. It just seems like luck largely and I I don't feel bad about saying that as someone who has won auditions, someone who has lost many more. I feel like luck is a huge factor in it and one that we uh, don't give as much room to based Mm. on the culture we've created around this idea of winning auditions and practicing hard. And if you practice hard enough, you will get something that, that, that whole sort of uh, meritocracy teacher. Yeah. 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 All those things. Before we leave this, there's one thing I wanted to get your ideas on. It's this idea that if we did take down the audition curtain, if, if auditions were no longer blind, the idea that there would be musicians who can't, proudly say that they won their job from behind a curtain. All Mm -hmm. that really mattered was how well they played. No one can challenge their position in the orchestra because it was solely based on their musical qualifications. What do you think about that? I'm not, I'm, if someone wants to give me a job, fine, give me the job. And if you want to give it to me for whatever reason, I'm not going to have any skin off my back around that. But there are a lot of people who really need that affirmation of, I got this position. I did this thing based on X, Y, and Z. Well, you know that the climate that we're in right now, that's immediately what your opponents are going to prey upon, Mm -hmm. is that you you got it because of the way you look. And not everybody has that attitude that you do of like, oh, well, then so be it. And what else do you have that you can give me because I'm a black person? Mm -hmm. You know, they'll they'll prey on you for that. And let's take it away from race. Let's say you have- Or sex, yeah. Or let's say you have your dream radio job at- some station that pays X, Y, and Z. It's in this city that you love perfectly. They happen to have an all-woman staff. They're specifically looking for someone with a deep, gristly voice to diversify aesthetically what they offer to their audiences. Would there be skin off your back for getting that job because you're someone with a male-presenting voice? I mean, what would that? What would you care if someone said, "Oh, you only got the job because your voice sounds like that"? Would would that would that be a problem for you? Well, Gary, let me. T- tell you a little bit about what i would say i mean really (laughs) yeah that's uh, it's a very good point that you make because um it's one of the few attributes that i like it's it's how i make my living Mm -hmm. so of course i'm (laughs) of course i'm gonna take it but are you gonna be swayed or even bothered by the people that say you got that job because XYZ, not because you write brilliant breaks, not because you know something about the classical repertoire, because you fit a category, you checked a box that that institution was looking for. Mm. And you said it's in my favorite town. Yeah. Whatever town that may be. And it, and it, and it pays real nice. Yeah. It's the perfect package. I think I would sleep pretty well. Yeah. And that's my attitude about it. So I feel like on the other you, side of it, go you ahead. You do understand that I was not, that I'm not one that takes that opinion, right? That I'm not coming at you that way. No, no, okay. but no, okay. but, but I'm saying a, a part of it for me, I, I put a lot of the onus on the people going out for these jobs and getting these auditions. So what? If someone says you only got this job because you're black or because you're a woman mm-hmm. or because the institution needed to check a box, if it benefits you, it benefits you. Damn, I don't I don't see. A, <laughs> I'm personally not going to be bothered. And I honor all of those people. You know, a lot of people that I know personally who celebrate the fact that where they are professionally 
is not based on who they are, but what they can do. It just so happens that I'm not bothered mm. by that. But anyway, both of these articles that we talked about this week are much more nuanced and much more lengthy than we we explored this week. So be sure to check those out in the description. I guess my moral from the story uh, from this uh, New Music USA article is that one way or another, no matter how you slice it, the best person is identified from behind the curtain through this blind audition, that whole thing is over. We need to shift it. There are a number of different reasons why people think it needs to be shifted. Um, but at the end of the day, it just needs to be shifted because we can see orchestras still largely look the same as far as uh, uh, racial makeup, mm. as far as what the orchestras are offering to audiences largely. It's not doing anything. We need to be more intentional about how we hire for orchestras. And if that means taking down the curtain, if that means having interview rounds, if that means making uh, the whole orchestra or the whole section of an orchestra on the search committee and not just a few people you know, what, what, whatever that needs to be. I think every orchestra and every arts institution largely can explore how to open those doors up a little wider and maybe do something down the road because it ain't working yet. Testify. <laughs> All right. Well, the title of this article was um, uh, subtitled Eyes Wide Shut. And I looked at the, uh, I never saw that famous film, Eyes Wide Shut, but I looked at the playlist and that uh, famous Shostakovich waltz was was in it. You've, you've seen the film. Do you yeah. remember the context by which that uh that that waltz came into the into the picture. Imagine the meeting of a secret society with everyone masked and in various stages of undress. Mm -hmm. And there you go. And you have Shostakovich playing in the background for part of it. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> they played other stuff. Sounds like one I'm still gonna miss. There are other <laughs> things to watch, but the Shostakovich will always be one of my favorite tracks to listen to. So we'll hear a little bit of that to get us to our second movement. comes from the jazz suite number two of Shostakovich. I, I'm not remembering at the on the top of my head, but I don't think that he originally called it a jazz suite. I think it was a suite for variety orchestra right, or, or something right. along those lines. But that idea of popular music and the ubiquitousness of uh, ubiquitousness of jazz, you bring those two things together and all of a sudden we're talking about a, a jazz suite. I don't know. But it's one of those tunes that in my experience that people like, I've never gotten stop playing that emails no. <laughs> based on that. Not There's, one time. You, you think it's the melody that people are attracted to the the general lilt last week you said you were in the waltz era of your life is is, is that what it is the people in their 50s and 60s just need a nice waltz is, is that what it is maybe there's a, there's a hummability about it yeah um and also we know that you know he was writing music uh while under all sorts of different oppression you know mm -hmm. so he had to write something that was acceptable yeah yeah something i'm always saying and this is no shade if a lot of, you know, the composers out here these days, 
I feel like more of their music could just use a nice melody. Mm. And and not to say that there isn't room for whatever type of music people want to create, but I think one of the classic aspects of that composition is the fact that it has that thing, as you say, that you can hum, that you can whistle, and it comes with a nice little dance lilt that, mm-hmm. that, that you can sway along to in your car or wherever yeah. you're listening to the classical music. All right, anyway, well, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to share a little bit of music that we have been spending some time with. And I'm going to get us started with a member of the Triloquy family. So this past Saturday, I had the pleasure of going over to the Eastside Freedom Library, not far from where you live, where they have all sorts of programming at the intersection of uh, a marginalized group's history, um, freedom, activism, and how that can be realized through story, either written story, musical story. So I went to one of those uh, programs and Kashimana Ahua was featured and she had her loop machine there. She was talking about her journey as a Nigerian artist who moved to Kenya. So before she even got to the United States, she had an immigrant story to tell. And then going from there here to Minnesota, you know, from the motherland to snowy Minnesota, yeah. you know, lots of, of stories there. So she contextualized all of uh, of that in, in uh, examples of music that she's written and she, you know, broke it down and performed it there live. And one of the uh, tunes that she performed was called She Session or She's Essential. So during COVID, we talked a lot about recession, but we didn't talk as much about how recession impacts different people differently. And, you know, through this recording, she was talking specifically about how the recession really impacted women and moreover, black women, very specifically. A really incredible song, a song with an activist slant and one that, uh, I'm excited to continue to listen to and to share with y'all here today. Here's a little bit of the tail end of She Session or She's Essential by Kashimana Ahua. She's a boss, queen mother and a wife, kissing to the knees, zooming between calls. Yeah, she fights, 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 though she tie, 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 tie. She's essential. She is a so again, as you can hear there, there aren't other instruments involved. It's just her own voice layered right. on top of her own voice layered, doing different things, doing different sound effects, and really creating this container for some really incredible vocals and, a, and an incredible message. This idea of um, essentialness, essential workers, is something that the further we get away from 2020, the more violent, the more toxic it feels to me. I even saw a commercial not too long ago, like an insurance commercial or something, where you have this black woman on the screen saying, as a single mother, as an essential worker, my pocketbook 
isn't always filled or, or, or whatever she said, you know, mm. this idea that we have connected the idea of an essential worker to a worker who makes minimum wage or a worker who might need some uh, uh, benefits or, or assistance from, from certain institutions. It seems like something that is essential would be the thing that we invest the most money into, the you most think? resources into. And it's really sad how we just painted this picture uh, uh, apart from that conversation of people whose jobs are essential and ones that are not essential, you're you know you're not essential, so stay at home and and figure it out. You know how you're going to eat and pay your bills. But and it, it, there's so many conversations that we can pull out of that era of history, <laughs> that, of contemporary history, and uh, I, I really appreciate Kashimana exploring that specifically from the woman perspective, this idea of being essential, how we're all essential, how certainly all women right. in some way are essential. We need everybody. Yep. Yep. Anyway, that's my second movement this week. Shout out to Kashimana. I hope y'all will go uh, check out the uh, track. That tune that we just listened to uh, is on an album called Prosperity Sound. So I'll have that track linked in the description. What you got for us this week for a second movement? More I guess you could say protest-oriented music. Yeah, that's um, true. Activism, yeah. Activist-oriented music, right. Um, the the world premiere recording of Montgomery Variations by Margaret Bonds mm -hmm. was done by the Minnesota Orchestra. Well, the world premiere professional recording, we'll right. say. There were colleges who did it, but this is the first high-quality, we'll play it on the radio right. sort of recording. And uh, Scott, you conducting. And she really takes you by the hand through some pretty watershed moments in the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, starting off with uh, the Montgomery bus boycott. Yeah. And she had been on tour all around uh, Selma, Montgomery, the, the whole area with a, a, a baritone soloist that is escaping me. And so she was seeing and, and absorbing all of these things that was going on. There was a historic church bombing where yeah. a lot of young girls were, were killed. Yeah, three, in, three black girls. And so I think that it's really poignant that we listen to it again today. In particular, my favorite movement called One Sunday in the South. It's the fifth movement from Montgomery Variations. It's interesting when we think about activism-inspired music or protest-inspired music, that sounds pretty pastoral. That, that sounds pretty pretty, you know, and, and maybe not what I might ex expect to hear out of a, an activist-oriented composition. I think that it highlights the fact that even in the midst of struggle, there are moments mm. that, you, that you have your time to recharge or to be with the people that you love. And... One Sunday morning in the South sounds like a lovely time to be pastoral and quiet. Mm -hmm. You have to have those moments away from whatever you're you're protesting against. You know, yeah. we take them as they come. And sun, you know, Sunday the church that was supposed to be the refuge, the the safe space. So much was 
created and codified in the black church in the South. And again, that wasn't really the safe space as you would just speak into, you know, they would the bomb the churches. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think you're right. Just picturing that moment and, and what it could be for people to have that little bit of respite was what was something important to, to, to have. And know, I also, those folks. yeah. And I also think that those moments are the reasons that we fight. Those moments mm-hmm. are the reasons that we protest and march and to save those things, to save our art, our pastoral moments. And to me, there is there was nothing else on the landscape at the time when this came out that was she was composing completely in the vocabulary mm-hmm. of all you know, your Howard Hansons, your Aaron Copelands. Sure. And she heard it once. Mm. And mm. it was because she was a black woman. Yeah. I'm saying it and you can say it to the next person and all that. That's the reason. And it's a shame because Last week we were talking about that idea of nostalgia for things that will never be attained again. Sure. I, the exact pronunciation is is hereith. Okay. The idea of something that you once knew that you're just never going to touch again, mm. and and it's slopping over in this moment. In this movement, yeah. I think she, I think it's a wonderful masterpiece for Margaret Bonds. Going back to that uh, piece that we were talking about with the BBC singers and what people will rally themselves around these Montgomery. Uh, protests back in the 60s, there were a lot of people rallying around. Mm. There were far more people sitting on the sides watching or mm-hmm. just looking at the news or, or or staying at home. Some even black, you know, I'm uh, as I say a lot, I'm from Memphis. And the story is, is that more than 50% of black folks thought Martin Luther King Jr. was doing too much. Mm. So, you know, Again, we can hold on to hope, but maybe history is teaching us that those of us who want to step out, those of us who want to actually actively press against the status quo may always be in the minority mm. in, in some in some way, whether you're black or not, whether you're a man, a woman, otherwise, you know, that that desire, that seeking spirit to really shift is not something that's common, certainly not something that's in the majority. I really think that there is something for everybody in in the Montgomery variations and the fact that it's only now, you know, no disrespect to the colleges, the fact that it's only now getting distributed mm-hmm. and, and widely heard, I think is just a crime. And there's so much more. There's, yeah. There are probably more Margaret Bond's orchestral works that we have yet to, I'm, I'm sure there are, you know, yeah. so we have to, you know, keep that curiosity and, and have hope for, for an expanded repertoire in just that way. Hope. You know, that, that word hope, brings us to the third movement in a really great way. So this week, I'm really excited to share a conversation that I had with Wu Man, who plays the pipa, the Chinese pipa, and Amjad Ali Khan, who is a master of the sarod. They came together, you know, through these very different musical traditions and aesthetics to create an album called Music for Hope. So it's a musical sort of realization and example of how people from very different backgrounds can come together to create something beautiful. So I uh, sat down with both of them. Uh, Wu Man uh, was in California and Amjad Ali Khan was joining me all the way from India. So we Somebody had, was up late. So, so shout out to technology for, <laughs> for us to actually be able to do this. We talk about the album. We talk about the hopes of the album. And I think it's just a, a nice brief, but really um, incredible conversation. Uh, and I'm excited to share it with y'all. So to 
to get us into uh, this conversation, I'm going to share an excerpt from the album Music for Hope. This tune is called Rhythm of Life. It features Aman Ali Bangash, Shane Shanahan, and Ayan Ali Bangash, in addition to uh, the featured artists Wu Man and Amjad Ali Khan. Hope y'all enjoy and hope y'all enjoy this conversation that I had with Wu Man and Amjad Ali Khan. Well, in China, uh, we call, which is my instrument, pipa uh, music, we call classical. That means old, uh, from a, you know, from a hundred years old, um, and and these people still hand it down to different uh, generation. We call that called classical music. So we all say pipa Chinese classical music. You see that 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 doesn't mean Western European classical music. It's not. Ali, is it similar for you? Is the uh, sarod considered classical? Is that the vocabulary that's used? You see, uh, I often feel that uh, yes, the history we have a history of five thousand years back of this classical music, but uh, I feel very sad to see. In an international market, our music, Indian classical music, is under the caption of world music. So world music has a different message. And the most original music of the world is folk music. And folk music is very, very natural. You know, so many times certain melodies come to my mind. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Da, 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 da. You know, all kind of tune comes to my mind, and it's very difficult to uh, give a caption whether it is classical or folk, or actually folk is our identity. Uh, you know, in our country in India, every region has a specific, very prominent uh, melody, which uh, can introduce Rajasthan, Bengal. Maharashtra, Punjab, you know, India is, uh, I mean, like China, India is also a huge country. And Saroj is a classical uh, instrument, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same as pipa, also in China, we call classical instrument. Um, uh, as as uh, uh, Maestro Ali mentioned that, uh, you know, what's the folk, what's the tradition, what's the classical, to, to me, I mean, it's all the same, just, you know. <laughs> Uh, different category, but I understand is classical for Chinese music, classical music, which is, you know, uh, core to music. You know, it's not from a uh, an, an countryside, folk more like outdoor countryside, people then, you know, worship or ceremony, but classical more kind of a certain style and uh, play front of emperor. So that's the difference. One of the things that's so fascinating about this album is that the two of you come from such different classical backgrounds. I wonder how did the two of you meet initially? Uh, it all happened during 
COVID time, and uh, I have always admired, you know, pipa as an instrument, and the sound, which I always admired, and so so many Chinese melodies, they were mostly pentatonic, of five notes. Da 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 da. Da 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 di da 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 di da 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 di di da 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 da. So, but in this album, it's not always painted on it. So, pipa. I mean, this woman is such a multi-dimensional, multi-faceted musician that she could play. All our ancient ragas, you know, all our numbers. I mean, the tracks, whatever we have played, and uh, so she very comfortably uh, managed all the, uh, the item, all the you know tracks, whether it is Maya uh, or uh, Rhythm of Life. So that uh, you know that shows her vast. Uh, commitment and involvement of music. Music is the ocean, as you know. Uh, we could only understand very little. We are still trying to understand music. <laughs> <laughs> Wuman, it it sounds like Ali had an appreciation for Chinese melodies and the and the people before the collaboration. Were you as familiar with some of the Indian music? Uh, yes, def definitely. Um, you know, sitar, saroj, it's it's all, and also the melody, Indian melody, very similar with Chinese melody. Uh, you know, the scale, uh, maestro was uh, mentioned, uh, the pentatonic, uh, you know, very very much so. Um, but in, as you mentioned, uh, asked uh, initially how we met, a um, few years ago, I I think at least the six six, seven years ago, I went to Bombay uh, with uh, another music group and we played in a concert there and in the audience, uh, Maestro Ali Khan was there. That was the first time. He probably forgot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, and then the most of the time we, <laughs> right, during the pandemic and I, you know, I got email from him. He said, hey, can we, can we do something together? So that was actually, yes, we met through music, through the appreciation to both, you know, Indian and Chinese music, we immediately hook up together and say, wow, it's, that's an interesting idea, Pipa and Saroj. Um, so here we are. So I really, I really remember that concert, it was amazing. So, you know, everything is destined when we have to meet, when we have to when we have to collaborate. So everything has a, you know, time the God, uh, God gave, gave us this kind of opportunity to, basically we want to serve people of the world and also the API movement. That is also, we, we, we are very well connected and we, we support that. Because in the world, I mean, the whole world has become so much education and world has achieved so much. 
but we are still facing racial problems in every country hmm. i mean the education could not create compassion kindness in a human being so we musicians i mean we are we are committed to the peace and harmony of the world so through our music i think uh, people they get peace tranquility and happiness in their life because everywhere this uh, the fear of war fear of you know whatever is happening in the world uh, everybody wants to every country maybe wants to rule the whole world which is not mm. possible so mm. we must uh, music is only our uh, you know medicine because now the world medical world also treating people with uh, music therapy the plants grow faster with appealing music cattle give more milk with appealing music and uh, and many mental problems of human beings are treated uh, with the appealing music so what do you say women i totally agree with you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> with with the covid pandemic, you know, the human connection that is typically required for music wasn't possible, at least not in the way that it's always been possible. Uh Wuman, I wonder if you'll talk about the virtual aspect of developing this project where you're recording over Zoom or how did how did that work? Um this is yeah, this is a very interesting process and I I it's kind of like a life experience process. Um, it, it's a virtual recording. Um, I never thought about that before, you know, <laughs> until the pandemic. Um, so the process was um, Maestro Ali Khan sending me some, his material, his recording, and asked me if, you know, listen to if i comfortable, if I could uh, alarm to play with something to record it. Um, so, and I listened with my headphone and I, with a microphone and with those portable, you know, like Zoom recording. And I listened at the same time and I play my, my pipa and sort of like a conversation to him, but without look at him, just listen to him. And then I, you know, at the, exactly the timing and I send my material to him and he probably feel like, wow, that's nice. Okay, so he sent more, <laughs> more piece to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's the whole process. Um, listen and play conversation virtually and, and then with the um, editing together in, lately and put it to instrument to and actually, you know, other, we have percussion as well. So kind of edit, edit, listen to and edit. Um, but this is, this is an amazing experience. I, I thought um, I actually could do it without playing, recording in the same studio. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to the technology. I mean, this distantly we could record and thanks to the technology. And uh, I mean, this the achievement of mankind we really feel proud that sitting, somebody sitting in San Diego or New York or New Delhi, uh, we can 
work, we can collaborate, we can create something, uh, you know, interesting. So this is, uh, I think music, as I always say, is a precious gift of God. Music does not belong to any religion like flowers, air, water, fire, fragrance, colors. So uh, music has connected the world. But language creates barrier, you know, language. I could not understand language. And my father, who was my guru, he often said that one can only do one thing in lifetime. He, he was an old timer. His life was committed to the purity of sound and music. And he did not want me to go to school also. He said, just concentrate on music, forget about books. Don't read mm. any books. It, it's a waste of time. But then for a few years, I, I went to some uh, school. Because of that, I can talk to you today. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very grateful. Wuman, how did you initially learn uh, the pipa? Was it also a, a family uh, uh, relationship that, that got you into playing that instrument? Well, um, well, pipa it actually, with a very long history, came from Central Asia. Uh, which is 2,000 years ago, and it ended up in China. Um, so Chinese have developed the, the, the pipa today, you know, you saw, and it developed that different language now. Um, but it definitely related with the, with the sarod, you know, different instrument, banjo or a guitar mm. or lute. Uh, so it came from the same family. Um, so my initially, my parents picked up for me because um, they really love traditional music. And uh, so they, one day my, my dad just handed me say, well, you know, this is the instrument. Do you want it to learn? Do you want it to, you know, we have a teacher who want to teach you. So that's how I started with. Um, first, of course, for kids, it's just, a, you know, hate it. <laughs> because it needs a lot of time and a very demanding instrument. So you, you have to practice, you have to sit down, just like awful to me. I have no spare time to play with my friends. Um, you know, slowly, slowly getting into the music, um, I feel like, wow, this is, this is really, I loved it. And uh, um, so that's how, how I started with. Parents, <laughs> important to parents give me the opportunity, yeah. Actually, my name, my my first name is also Amjad, A-M-J-A-D, Amjad. Because there are thousands of Ali Khan in the world, but my parents uh, called me with the first name, Amjad. And uh, we look forward to a tour. I think this uh, album and what we have done, I think we should travel together all over the world and perform and let uh, let people hear that China and India can do something beautiful, something peaceful, harmonious, and something, uh, you know, which has a good message, message of peace and harmony all over the world. We must tour women. Uh, we must travel. We must tour with our album and we must perform all over the world. The opening concert could be in New York or San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
I wanted to ask you about improvisation. Uh, for many um, classical musicians who are Western, you know, the music must come from the piece of paper, and that's the only way it happens. I wonder if you can talk about the tradition of improvisation when it comes to playing uh, the pipa and how that impacted this project. Well, uh, well, I think uh, Maestro Amja Ali Khan, he also will tell you a lot of story, the tradition of improvisation. Um, a lot of music, um, a lot of country, a lot of culture based on uh, improvisation, you know, especially Indian music, um, like Persian music, a lot of uh, tradition, which is um, we musician memory, use memory. So I remember when I was little, um, it, my teacher just singing to me uh, without uh, the sheets, without a score. And I copy, mm. I imitated his sound, I imitated his voice, you know, the, the way he treated each notes and the automation, it's all singing, singing to you. So, and you imitate on your instrument, you play on the pipa, but exactly like singing. So that's kind of the, the very traditional way to training. Uh, but when you, as soon as you know, I got in the music school conservatory, so that's another different system. I you know, have to look at the music score, you know, especially you play com composition, new music, contemporary music, someone wrote for you, um, so that's you follow the notes. But um, I love improvisation because sometimes spontaneously happened something. And like this, this recording, when I listen to um, Sarod, the sound, the way they play, and the melody they put out, the ornamentation, sometimes I listen that I, I immediately could catch that kind of a feeling to response. Uh, to the music, um, but I also said uh, um, recording is a recording. I can listen a couple of times and play a couple of times, <laughs> but for the concert, for the live concert, will be just spontaneously happen and uh, will be very different than the CD could be <laughs> like that. Um, yeah, so the the improvisation key that's the soul of music. Um, that's the how you. Um, people respect you. Um, uh, you know, say what is the what is my master player, or what is the, you know different level. If you improv, I remember I I went to some music in Indian music music concert, and people will respond when someone play, and people will shouting like bravo during the piece because they get it. They they can based on just the one scale to, you know, just the da da di da 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 da, and that few notes they can play half an hour, very different. <laughs> so I think that's that's human wisdom. <laughs> yes. I think woman is a most gifted musician because she can do improvisation and also read and write music. I can't read and write, so I'm a I'm not a complete musician but I only improvise. And as woman said, my father also used to sing and I had to follow. So I follow the oral tradition, whatever my father sang. And whenever I'm performing, I'm singing through my instrument. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
So my father used to sing and I had to follow. So this is very natural uh, oral tradition. And what I admire, as I salute the Western classical musicians, how they can uh, you know, perform uh, at the same time, read and perform. It's very difficult. I can't do it. And my, I'm grateful to my sons who are involved in the album, Aman Ali Bangash and Ayan Ali Bangash, my two sons. So they are the seventh generation in my family, father to son, father to son. And they have been great help in, uh, you know, helping us meet and uh, complete the project and uh, connection with Shane Shanahan. So, uh, I mean, I hope people enjoy listening to our album as much as we have enjoyed collaborating and respecting our tradition and our culture. And I hope, and through this album, I hope there is peace all over the world. All this fight and, uh, you know, whatever is happening in the world, uh, we don't uh, support any clashes. So I hope that the world should realize the value of peace. Every human being should realize the value of peace. And we are looking forward for our collaboration, our performance, our traveling, and you know, collective presentation. Yes, yes, thank you. I'll, I'll ask one more question that was... Um... I'll already answered in a way, but I'll ask anyway, starting uh, with you, Wu Man. I, I am really drawn to the title of this album, Music for Hope. We all have so many hopes. I wonder, uh, through your uh, recording this project, what were you thinking about? What what are your hopes that you connect to this music? Well, um, yeah, the, the title, Music for Hope, came from during the pandemic time and during the recording session when... Um, Ayan and Amam will discuss what kind of title um, to represent our feeling at that moment, at that year, last year. Um, so we discussed that. We came up with many, many beautiful music. We came up, you know, the title, we came up with love. We came up, but we both decided, let's say, music for hope because we really want the hope. Um, and, you know, everyone knows the last three years, is, you know, we all stay in home and people get frustrated, depressed. Um, so music really brings people together um, to, I, you know, music part of people, part, part of a human being really gives the hope. So I think listen to this, this specific CD album and the music from a different tradition, from different culture, but their conversation, there is a bright side. Um, I do feel that is the, the, the feeling that, that for us, for, for five of us on the CD, that's what we hope, but also hope the whole world, as um, Amja uh, Ali Khan Maestro mentioned, uh, you know, for hope for the world, hope for the peaceful, hope for the love. Um, no hate. That's what I said. Don't hate each other. <laughs> I often I often feel that arrogance is the worst disease. It is very da most dangerous than the cancer also. Why people become 
successful people why do they become so arrogant so i i think by listening to appealing music everybody can uh, i mean we can only hope that every human being should become very compassionate very kind very gracious and we collectively can give beautiful world to our next generation so this is our hope album Music for Hope. Uh, really great to speak with Amjad Ali Khan and Wu Man. Oh, always, always great to have outside perspectives and, and different ideas. Hope y'all will go check out Music for Hope. All right, well, we're going to uh, go into the final movement. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, tickets and ticket pricing and all of, the, of that sort of thing. You're going to a concert uh, in, in, in not too long. Who are, you, who are you going to see down in Omaha? Jason Isbell. Yeah, and we've talked about Jason Isbell in the past and about how he's done his part and putting on black folks and, mm-hmm. and you know, making sure that folks can't say that he wasn't a part of the the activism that, that was going on. An artist uh, that Jason Isbell has uh, done a lot of great stuff for, who we've talked about before, is a woman named Adia Victoria. I thought we would revisit a track that we have celebrated here on Triloquy before to get us into the final movement. This one by Adia Victoria called South Gotta Change. It's falling and it's falling fast I won't go blindly in the night I will drag you to the light Sit up to the mountain Told the mountain, say my name And if you're tired of walking with the children lead the way Cause I'm off you, I won't leave you Won't let you slip away Come what may singing about how South got to change. Mm-hmm. So the things that need to change, are those people just incapable of changing those things? They can't make the choice to stop being racist or stop being whatever is toward a, a, a better future? Maybe. So why, why would that be the limit of what we can choose to do? You know, we can choose to sidebar that arrogance we can choose to go into situations in a in a better mood or with mm-hmm. a better attitude you know yep. I, I think we don't put enough responsibility on ourselves to actually be in control sure. of what we bring to a situation or, or how we exist in the world we're all the the product to some degree of our environment and 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 all all of that stuff i, I don't mean to uh minimize that and 
there are so many choices mm-hmm. that, that we can make toward making this a, a, a better world. We don't have to be upset. We don't even have to be sad, but we choose to stick to that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we see how that manifests in, in, in different ways. And just as Adia Victoria is, is singing about there, South got to change and it's not going to change itself. It's going to take people actually making the decision to go about things differently or approach things differently. Uh, I want to give an update too, since we brought in Adia Victoria's music, she's had her own tour headlining. So uh, big success coming from, look, just look for more from yeah. Adia Victoria on yeah. the way. Well, anyway, we got into this with, we're here in the fourth movement. We got into this by mentioning Jason Isbell. Mm-hmm. How much did you pay if you're comfortable sharing for those Jason Isbell tickets? Uh, just shy of 70 bucks. Okay. Would you consider that on the cheap? Do How can I ask? Do you feel like you got a deal like Jason Isbell really could charge more if he wanted to? Do you feel like that 70 bucks is a little bit pricey or or somewhere in the middle considering your love for his music, you know, the experience you're looking forward to and your own pocketbook. You right. Know? <laughs> if I'm going to, if I'm going to start saying, well, I remember when I used yeah. to pay 20. Yeah. So I can't do that. Um, I understand that it takes money to put these tours on and rent the hall and all that sort of thing. So I think that $70 for the seats that I got were just, was just right. Okay. Yeah. So you're not, you're not complaining about, about that price. Okay. But you know, venue plays into it. This Mm. is not a standing show. This is a nice sit down, acoustically thoughtful building where I probably would have paid upwards of a hundred or $120. Okay. All right. What's brought this sort of idea. I'm asking these questions over this past week. Uh, one of the articles that came across my eyes, I'm reading here from NME.com. It says, Ticketmaster faces class action lawsuit over Drake ticket prices. I'm going to read just a little bit. According to the filing, which was obtained by the Toronto Star, a Montreal man bought two official platinum seats for a Drake show at the Bell Center, which is set to take place in July for about $800. The following day, a second show was allegedly added to Ticketmaster for the next day with the same seats costing about $350. So we're talking about Ticketmaster doing what it can to gouge prices and get whatever cost or or whatever uh, uh, benefit that they can get from doing that. I'm also thinking about these Beyonce tickets. Everybody who listens to Triloquy knows that I'm a proud member of the Beehive. I cannot pay $2,000 to go see Beyonce. Well, I can, but that is a vacation or that's a, or yep. me fixing my car out there that's <laughs> that's needed some uh, body work done for a little while or uh, or or finding a, a I don't know, th- there's a All lot that. that can be done yep. with that. And not that I'm not a fan and not even necessarily that I don't have the money, but I think there's really an issue that is uh, coming more and more in, in conversation surrounding me. And now this article about companies who sell the tickets and, and create the events, really gouging mm-hmm. people and just harnessing capitalism in a way that is just harmful, that just maintains this certain sort of status quo around exclusivity. And I think that is really what uh, what bites at me. Again, Ali Khan was talking about arrogance, you know, this idea that I'm better or I'm more learned or whatever. Mm-hmm. When it comes to these high dollar ticket prices, it's I get to be here, you know, I have the means of doing this and you don't. It's like, it's that feeling of exclusivity. Mm. Do you think that is genre specific? Is there, do you feel like 
you can go, you could find a roots show or a country show or whatever to go to that has that ingredient of exclusivity. It, it, it seems like that's not really a part of the culture mm. that folks like Jason Isbell live in and, and exist in. I think you're talking about a different kind of exclusivity. If I find some roots musician at a bar in a you know little visited area of town, mm-hmm. well, I found a little gem. You know, and, and I'm exclusive because I'm in the know about it then, right? Right, right. But exclusivity built on how much money you got is very different. It's very different. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. Like I said, you're talking about different kinds of exclusivity. And then, you know, I can talk about how that relates to hip hop and, you know, people wanting to be in VIP sections or being able right. to say they said here or whatever. Right. But I think that conversation is even more pronounced when we start talking about orchestral music, so-called classical music, this idea that this is an exclusive space for us. I'm I'm not sure that there's any orchestra out there charged. Well, let me take that back because I, I'm sure I could easily go on to the Mets website and find a ticket right. for something that's $1,500 or, or $2,000. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to think about exclusivity as uh, as a good thing in any way. Uh, you, you know, one another thing that I'm thinking about, and shout out to all of the artists, the local artists, I hate seeing people post things with the uh, with the words sold out pasted over the event. Mm. Well, then why are you letting me know then? It's not like I could buy a ticket. So you you are saying that this event, this circumstance, this experience is exclusive. Me, it's so me, exclusive me, that me, you can't me. even get in now. You know, yeah. it is impossible. You know, I, I feel like we have just leaned on exclusivity so much. We mm. have created the monster of folks like Ticketmaster, Gout, and not not to say that that is the only thing at play, but right. I definitely think it's a contributing factor and something that we need to face head on in this field of so-called classical music, breaking down the exclusivity as an example of our art form being one that is actually for everyone, that is accessible for everyone. And of course, it varies from institution to institution. The Memphis and Omaha Symphony ticket prices are not going to match the Met and and these other folks. But I think even on, on different levels, there's this idea of exclusivity that I think we need to move away from, whether you're talking about pop concerts, hip-hop concerts, even orchestral concerts. So it all comes down to Ticketmaster, though. So I, I, you asked me, how much, would, how much would you pay to see Beyonce? Now, I'm not saying what you could, mm-hmm. what you would. I could justify up, see, and now people go, I'll be all in my pockets. I would justify $500. I, w- I would I, Each. I would, I would wow. go that high wow because that is a once in a lifetime experience last night i was last night last week i was talking about the third movement of my life you know sitting in the rock people had a problem with me saying sitting in the rocking chair but (laughs) garrett is allowed to say he's gonna sit in the rocking chair and tell the stories to the next generation i would love for you know this artist this you know who was once world famous maybe there's somebody more famous in the year 2090 when i'm sitting in that rocking chair 
Uh, but I would love to be able to tell that story so I can invest that money for that experience and, and whatever. And you but tell them how much you paid and then they're going to say, you got a deal. Exactly. But when we start talking <laughs> about multiple thousands or when we talk about this you know, article I just read from where one day you have a ticket that's 800 something dollars and the next day when they add a show, it's less than half. We're, we're just talking about exclusivity run rampant, yeah. this, this capitalism run rampant and this greed and this arrogance really just creating barriers around music, classical or not, that we don't have to have. We don't have to have these barriers. We just choose to maintain them. Again, going back to choice, what we choose to do and how we choose to act. I bet you in 10 years, the the price that you, you would choose to pay would be different. Well, you know, in, well, in, in 10 years, the pocket's going to be even fatter. Let's just face it. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> right. But are you going to be able to stand on concrete? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, I, no, I, because one of the I, reasons I don't why stand I, down with the younglings, you know, right. I, <laughs> that's one of the, that's one of the things that factored into the price that I paid for the Jason Isbell show. So you say you could have got cheaper, but you wanted to sit down because I'm, I'm not going to stand. There isn't a place <laughs> for you to stand in this place. It's a, it's where the Omaha symphony plays. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a. And I'll sit down show. I think it's going to be a more mature audience. Yeah. I think that that factors in too. Sure, sure. Well, I don't know. I, I guess my, my closing thoughts here is that in whatever way that you engage the arts or an arts institution, if you see them moving more or if you see yourself moving more toward exclusivity, you know, the selling point being that everyone can't be in the space, if that is the the brew that that you're brewing, I would encourage you to critique that and maybe see what it would look like to explore the opposite, creating a space that people want to be in because everyone is allowed. There there are no gates, you know, and I know that we can talk about capacity. Venues only have so much seating. I don't know how many orchestras are out here worried about not having enough seating, you know, s- selling out to that degree for just mm. a, a typical concert. Mm. So let's talk about what a lack of exclusivity is, more inclusion, more just openness, what that can do for prices, what that can do for the culture of live performance, and especially what that can do for so-called classical music. Now do plane tickets. <laughs> well, see, that's different because uh, Delta Comfort Plus knows me well. I'm telling but, you. But, but I have to get a, off the plane in a hurry. That is that, a, that's the thing. That's a different exclusivity. <laughs> I, I I choose to sit close to the front because I need to exit this plane immediately. <laughs> mm. but, that, but that's the growth that, that I have to do. I okay. need to learn not to get so panicked when the plane lands that I need to just get off of it. That's one of my my weird things, but I, I accept the call out. So gotcha. may, maybe I need to crit- critique my own exclusivity <laughs> in that way. All right. Thank you everybody for tuning in. We'll see you next week.